All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I want to thank each of you for listening. I want to also thank uh, our sponsors uh, for making this show economically viable. And if I can finally get to uh, my notes, I can announce the sponsors for the second hour. Uh, and I am here they are. Paramount Resources, That's you know, I've got to get this right, too. I'm, I'm butchering this as badly as I'm butchering Robert Kuchnick's name. Paramount like Gold did. and like Silver, Prophecy Platinum, Avino Silver and Gold Mines, and Millrock Resources. Those are the sponsors uh, that make this show economically viable for the second hour, and we're really pleased, again, to have Robert uh, Muchnick and Robert, oops, there I did it again, Robert <laughs> Muchnick and Robert Unger with us. Uh, at the break, we were talking a little bit about, we, we just mentioned that one of the, what I wanted to ask you about to, to review again this week was this whole question of why do the Jews put up with this? They're promised one thing, and then the rug is pulled out from under them, and they're not given what they were promised. Why do Jews uh, put up with this? Uh, just go over that. Uh, either of you can address this issue again, uh, Robert, uh, maybe Robert Unger. Well, the Jews uh, put up with it because, unfortunately, uh, many Jews are, you know, what I said before, they're Jainos, Jews in name only. They don't believe in the Torah, uh, and when when you're not coming from that level, you know, it says in the Torah that the uh, fear of God is the beginning of all wisdom. And if you don't fear God, then you're going to be looking out for your own selfish provincial interests and you don't you don't see the bigger picture mm-hmm. and you're concerned about what the goyim say which is is a hebrew word for gentiles you're mm-hmm. you're you're concerned about what the un which stands for united nazis says and uh, you don't stand up for yourself you have no pride uh the man that uh, we support in israel in fact uh, bernard quigley of a publication called the hill called him the Ron Paul of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moshe Faglin is a man who not only has tremendous knowledge and is tremendously God-fearing, but he's a man who understands what it means to be a Jew. A Jew is supposed to be a light unto the nations. The Jews were put forth by God to bring his word to the Gentile nations, the Goyim. And instead of being a light unto the nations, most of the people in the Jewish establishment are a blight unto the nations. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to rekindle a movement in Israel that's called Manigot Yehudit, which means Jewish leadership, and it's led by Moshe Faglin and Rob is the uh, American director. Mm-hmm. That, that group wants a 
a Torah-based. And by Torah-based, we don't mean that we're going to force people to be religious. You can't force someone mm-hmm. to believe in God. But we're certainly going to make the nation stand for God's principles. Mm-hmm. You want to add to that, Rob? Sure. And why, why do the Jews stand for this? How did the situation get like this? Well, I was having a... I went to the Evil Zionist Lobby uh, APAC. I went to their convention a few years ago. And by Evil Zionist Lobby, I just used the terminology of the enemies of Israel. Mm-hmm. And while uh, um, I wouldn't call them an Evil Zionist Lobby, I would call them a Lazy Zionist Lobby. Mm-hmm. Because all their interests... Well, I, I really probably shouldn't uh, bash APAC too much, but they have such... Uh, potential to help uh, Israel and they just uh, they just support the establishment no matter what it does mm-hmm. so I'm very disappointed in them but mm-hmm. I was there at a meeting and I'm sitting at a table and Mubarak's son Mubarak's son's friend is there and this fellow I forgot his name he's uh, he's some kind of an ambassador and he travels around the United States going to synagogues and uh, making friends with Jews and he's charming the pants off of all the ten people at the table. And I started with him, and I said, please, uh, you have so, so, such a good time with the Jews? Tell me, what is your claim to Jerusalem? What is the Muslim claim to Jerusalem? Tell me. So he looks at me and says, well, you've got your 200 books, and I've got our 200 books. I said, I know what my books say. I said, Jerusalem is mentioned in our Torah in our Holy Bible, almost 900 times. Mm-hmm. Not mentioned once in your book. Mm-hmm. He said, how did it become holy to you? He said, he said oh, right now the, the program's about to start. I'll talk to you after. No. So then he walks over to me in the middle of the program, gives me his card, says, uh, I have to go, call me, send me an email. So I send him a few emails. Of course, he never responded. The problem is the Arabs, the, the Arab Muslims, they claim what's not theirs, meaning the Jewish holy sites, as their holy sites, whereas the Jews of Israel reject their holy sites mm. because they want to be Israeli and not Jewish. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what it is. It's whoever controls... Um, Israel became the occupiers in 1967 when we took back our... when we liberated our holy sites and rejected them and gave sovereignty over the, the Temple Mount, the holiest site in, Jerusalem, in Judaism, to the Muslims that mm. day um, mm. because it, it's considered a burdensome stone for them and they don't, the, Jews, the Israelis don't want it because they don't want to be Jewish. They don't want to be... Um, um, when a Jew prays, they put on a, a prayer shawl called a talis. And so when Jews came back from, from Europe or from North Africa or the Middle East to Israel... Israel actually re-educated them and said, you don't need to be Jewish here. You don't need to wear a talus. It's on our flag. Mm-hmm. The flag is designed as a talus. Mm-hmm. And they said, that's enough. You don't have to follow the commandments anymore. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's on the flag. Just be Israeli. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really where it comes from. So it really goes to the heart, then again, of, of uh, believing in the tradition, believing in uh, the the God of the Torah, the, that is uh, the Holy Book, or not? Doesn't it come down to that, really? So, and I think you mentioned also there was a strong communist influence, a view of looking to Caesar, looking to 
uh, Stalin or Lenin or Bush or, or Obama or Netanyahu, not Netanyahu, uh, people like that. I mean, instead of to God, looking to uh, earthly kings for our, uh, to take care of us, right? Well, prior- right, even on the billboards and the buses when they had the last election, the billboards for uh, Bibi Netanyahu said, vote Bibi for success. The billboards for Moshe Fagelin said, vote Moshe Fagelin because he has a God. That's the mm. difference. Mm-hmm. So that's the fundamental difference. I think that's a very important difference, and that's maybe one of the reasons why uh, this is such a, uh, such, a, such a difficult issue, the Middle East, uh, and because uh, of this very basic worldview, this very basic different worldview. Right. I think and, it has and, you know, a lot it, to do. It, the confusion, of course, as you know, Jay, uh, being a man of the book, one of the greatest things the devil does, Satan does, Satan, is that he creates confusion. Mm-hmm. He's the master of confusion. And he's the master of lies. And so uh, you'll hear in the gold community certain anti-Semites say that Israel controls the United States. Well, if Israel truly controlled the United States, then the United States wouldn't be successful in getting Israel to give away its land all the time. Mm-hmm. Israel recently threw 10,000 Jews out of Gaza. That's how all the turmoil is, is being created there. They did it under pressure from America. That doesn't excuse the Israeli leaders for giving in to the pressure. But certainly if Israel was controlling uh, America then uh, Great Neck would be given back to the Iroquois Indians. Right. Yeah, I, I, I hear the logic, and it makes uh, a lot of sense. Okay, so uh, I think, you know, basically what it boils down to is that there you have biblical Jews, Jews that really believe in the Torah, and Jews that are secular Jews. And then, so isn't that really, that's, that's probably at the heart of, of a lot of this, this, this uh, basic difference. Sure. It's, uh, one is antithetical to the other. Communism, the, one of the, the, the essence of communism is that the state is God. Right. And man is God. Right. The essence of being a Jew is that there's only one God, and that's the God of the Torah, and we must, uh, you know, kneel to him. Obey. Um... And, uh, yeah, and that's right. Instead of kneel to Caesar, uh, kneel to God. So that's the basic issue. All right. So I, what I'd like to do now, having discussed that, uh, those issues and, and the history of Israel a bit, uh, is to then, and, and the history of the, you know, Israel going back to biblical times as well as the modern Israel, I'd like then to transcend into modern times, if we can. Uh, it's my understanding that both of you believe that Ron Paul uh, would be good for Israel. Why so? Well, number one, um, we believe that if he follows his policy of non-intervention, that is good for every nation. And, of course, his policy of non-intervention is exactly the same as that expressed by Thomas Jefferson and George Washington. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was, Ron Paul was the one who stuck up for Israel when Israel in 1980 or 81 bombed the Azarek nuclear reactor in, in Iraq. Mm-hmm. And everyone condemned him, and, and Ron Paul, um, you know, said, hey, this is a matter of national sovereignty, and Israel has a right to do what it needs to do in its own view and its own national defense. Mm-hmm. The, the problem with Ron Paul is several times he has contradicted that. Mm-hmm. If, if he simply would stick to the line, which I agree with, that 
I have no right to intervene and refrain from commenting, he would have done a lot better. And uh, as I think I told you, uh, you know, I'm not here to be destructive. Hmm. I, I contacted uh, Paul's office in 08, way back when he was running the first time. And I tried to uh, communicate with them, and I tried to be constructive and to educate. And I, I unfortunately was never really given the opportunity to sit down with somebody of responsibility in the Paul camp and, and elucidate on these subjects. And that's All a right. shame because he would be higher in the polls right now. All right, I want to get to some of these issues, uh, Bob Unger. Uh, in, a, in a few minutes, I have a couple more questions before we get there. Uh, I mean, the, the general opinion is, and, and of course, people like Rick Santorum, who are really considered to be, you know, the sort of aligned with the uh, fundamentalist Christians, is that we need to have a strong military that spends huge amounts of money in defending Israel. Uh, and the general consensus is that if we had a Ron Paul uh, as president, Israel would, uh, you know, would be could be subject to attack. That it would be less, far less safe than it is. Uh, under the current uh, under the current setup, uh, why is he wrong? Or why why is that idea wrong? Go ahead, Rob. Okay. You take it. Okay, right now Israel um, is militarily strong enough to defend herself mm-hmm. um, e- easily. Israel could, if if she wanted to, she could defeat all of the Arab countries in a day. Mm-hmm. If she would if she would unleash her arsenal. Her arsenal. Mm-hmm. Um, she uses about. Uh, one percent when she uh, goes against uh, the PLO, mm-hmm. um, and for that Israel gets destroyed in world media. Mm-hmm. Um, the aid that Israel gets is about uh, two point four percent of Israel's uh, economy. Mm-hmm. It, can, it could easily overcome that. It, it came. It's about. Uh, it, it was for a few years, approximately two point seven billion dollars. Uh, of which two billion dollars has to be spent in the United States military uh, uh, industry. In other words, so, a welfare program for American defense contractors. Mm-hmm. Continue, mm-hmm. Rob. So, so that fascism. is why uh, the American government will never cancel this program unless Israel requests that it be canceled, mm-hmm. um, because it's just too valuable for these companies in uh, in Seattle who get these military contracts. Uh, right. Is, but Israel is vulnerable a bit on. Uh, on uh, replacement parts, Israel scrapped its own fighter jet, which was well more adva- way more advanced than uh, the the F-16s that it got from uh, America. It had mm-hmm. uh, um, an airplane called the Levy, and uh, it scrapped it to to take the airplane from America. And you know, if you get, if given a few years, Israel could could make her own planes again. She makes the best tank in the world, um, called the Merkava. Um, it's just. And how many jobs does Israel lose because of foreign aid? Israel loses a hundred thousand manufacturing jobs because of the money that it takes uh, from America. Hmm. Um, because fact, it has to have that worked on elsewhere in, in the U.S. Yes, those jobs. Those jobs wind up in the Northwest, predominantly. Mm-hmm. Correct of America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And and if you go on, if you Google the word Jerusalem Institute for Market Studies. You'll see a very excellent report done by a uh, free market think tank in Jerusalem, documenting uh, approximately a dollar fifty 
lost by Israel for every one dollar of American aid. Mm-hmm. Well, that's um, it's very interesting and um, uh, would seem to be um, you know counterproductive uh, based on what you're telling me. What both of you are Jews, but both of you are also Americans. Do you do either of you see this whole discussion that's going on these days about Iran? Do you do either of you see uh, Iran as being an imminent threat to Israel? with or without the United States? I guess not, based on what you said. Okay. Okay. Um, to the United States, um, as far as I understand, they don't have ballistic missiles that could reach here. Right. However, there's always suitcase bombs. But uh, um, Israel, uh, certainly, I mean, Jews have been, throughout our history, we have learned, or at least some Jews have learned, that when someone pledges to annihilate you, you listen to them. Mm-hmm. Now, if, if my group um, takes over Israel, if, if the head of my group, Moshe Feiglin, becomes prime minister, he has said the first thing he would do is, is uh, assassinate Ahmadinejad. Mm-hmm. That's what, I mean, if he wants to annihilate the Jews of Israel, this is what he's going to get. Mm-hmm. And whoever else says that is going to get it too. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, it's fairly simple. We believe them. They say they're going to annihilate us. They're actively working on nuclear bombs. We're not going to stand for it, because if Iran has nuclear bombs and the capacity to deliver them, they don't have to use them to destroy Israel. People won't uh, move there anymore. People will leave there. Investment mm-hmm. will, will, will dry up. It'll just, it, it, it's a situation that cannot, cannot happen. And Ron Paul makes a mistake by quoting a couple of leftist... Uh, uh, Israeli officials who say, oh, well, we're not sure if Iran is a threat or not. He should just mm-hmm. leave it, leave it alone. It's not our, saying it's not our business. Israel can do whatever it wants to do, of course. It's mm-hmm. not our business. But mm-hmm. when he pitches in with uh, that these uh, Israeli officials say Iran may not be a threat, I mean, he, he, in my opinion, he's going, uh, he's going over the line and also mm-hmm. hurting himself with uh, American Jewish voters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt about that. But it would be also consistent with his, uh, with his uh, view back in 1981 uh, not to criticize Israel for, uh, for its strike against uh, those Iraqi installations. Right. Well, you know, my Bob dad, Unger, Jay, was a pretty tough guy. He was a street fighter. And he taught that? me that if someone says to you that they're going to kill you, you don't have to give them a chance to actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so just by stating one nation to another, we're going to annihilate you, that is really tantamount to an act of war. You just don't make a statement that you're going to kill somebody in a serious manner and not expect there to be ramifications. But the United States should not be getting involved and they should, you know, right now Israel is basically being ordered by the United States that they can't unilaterally attack. And, and if you remember when Saddam Hussein was raining Scud missiles on Israel, mm-hmm. Israel very foolishly allowed George Bush to order them not to retaliate. What kind mm-hmm. of a nation stands there and gets hit by missiles and doesn't protect its own interests? Mm-hmm. And why would have Bush said that? Why? Why would? What can you speculate on that? Well, because the new world order uh, wants to uh, control everything, control and uh, you know. Meanwhile, <laughs> those missiles are raining down on people. You want to say something, Rob? Yeah, basically, 
I think uh, he didn't want Israel involved because if Israel was involved, that would have destroyed the the, the quote unquote coalition of the willing. Mm-hmm. Syria wouldn't be involved attacking Iraq anymore if it was doing it with Israel. Mm-hmm. And George Bush, um, George Bush had his uh, has his military um, uh, scramble certain signals so Israel couldn't tell um, if certain planes or, or objects in uh, in the Iraqi desert were friend or foe. Hmm. So he left it up to Yitzhak Shamir, the Israeli prime minister at the time, said that if you're going to attack, you don't know if you're going to be killing Americans or, Isra- or Iraqis. Hmm. Well, if it was uh, my group in charge and we saw somebody over there moving towards us, they're finished. And uh, that, would be, that would be the last time George Bush uh, tried to hide, who, tried to hide uh, something from us. It seems to me that we have aligned ourselves, allied ourselves, in, in essence, with, with the Israelis in a sense that gives us an attack on Israel as an attack on the United States. I was listening to what both of you said about not waiting to be attacked before you hit somebody else. The, uh, uh, and that seems to be the modus operandi that George Bush put into effect, essentially, uh, was to, you know, the first strike uh, capability or, or the need to hit others before they hit us. And by having ourselves aligned with, with Israel, it seems to me that, you know, and by equating ourselves or being friends with Israel, in a sense, that gives our politicians a reason to fire up our military and to become aggressive overseas. Would you agree with that? Yeah, well, the difference is is that when uh, Bush and Rumsfeld were talking about Iraq having weapons of mass destruction, and even um, in inferring and in some cases actually stating that Iraq was involved in 9-11, they created the pretext to be mm-hmm. able to attack. But in the case of Israel, vis-a-vis Iran, obviously those two nations are in very close proximity, mm-hmm. and Iran is telling Israel, we're going to annihilate you. Yeah, uh, that's that's a very serious thing. Yeah, the weapons of mass destruction, in fact, which were never really right. found, at least at that time. Saddam officially. Hussein never said to the United States, "I'm going to annihilate you." Yeah, I, that's that's correct. That's correct. Uh, that, that's right. And uh, we have had uh, uh, Vincent Bugliosi on this show, who uh, has written a book uh, called "The Prosecution of George W. Bush for Murder," and uh, talked about the false pretenses that were were used. And uh, that's another issue. We won't spend more time on that. Um, so let's get to uh, Israeli politics a little bit, if we, or, or maybe before we go there, Bob Unger. I think there were. Did, did you uh, cover the issues? Did, did uh, both of you cover the issues that you wanted to take up with respect to Ron Paul? And the... yeah, there were there were four basic issues, and I'll let Rob uh, begin. Go ahead, Rob. Okay, I'll start with it. Basically, my my main issues are um, Ron Paul put out a video on January third, two thousand and nine, which was within hours after Israel um, rolled the tanks back into Gaza. Now, why did Israel do this? Because um, when Israel threw out 10,000 Jews from Gaza in August of 2005, <clears throat> August of 2005, it was supposed to bring peace. Now, all it did was bring an average of four missiles, mortars, and grenades into being launched into Israel every day for three and a half years. Um, and actually, it had happened for three or four years before that, too. So it had been eight years of an average of 1,250 rockets a day, 1,250 rockets a year, 
10,000 rockets over eight years being fired into Israel from Gaza. And leaving, leaving Gaza in 2005 didn't help the situation at all. Uh, it only emboldened the Arabs who lived there. And so uh, um, Israel decided they have no choice but to go back in and clean up the terrorist nest. And so Ron Paul, in his video of that day, he said it's a sad day for the world. He said Israel has, has shown, has used the concept of preemptive war. Mm-hmm. Now, I have no idea what he's meaning by preemptive war. Now, 10,000, it's on your head, um, mm-hmm. with multiple dead, mm-hmm. uh, thousands maimed, property destroyed um, over eight years, it doesn't sound like preemptive. Yeah. I don't know how he could possibly come up with preemptive. Then yeah. in the same video, he said Israel has made Gaza into a virtual concentration camp. Now, this is horrifying language for a Jew. Mm-hmm. Because this, is, this is what... The, the, the first step to annihilate a people is to delegitimize them and dehuma, dehumanize them. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, this is what the Nazis did. The Jews are vermin. Um, now, it, in our world, the only people who it's okay to annihilate are the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So the Arabs want to annihilate Israel and the Jews. So they make Israel into the Nazis. Mm-hmm. So now, when you use that terminology... When you make Israel into the Nazis by, by saying, when you say the Ar- Israel put the Arabs into a virtual concentration camp, you're making Israel into the Nazis. So mm-hmm. you're delegitimizing them. It's okay to get rid of them, to annihilate them. Mm-hmm. And now I don't know on this phrase it, what he meant, but the choice of words is at best awful. Mm-hmm. Um, then he goes, on, he goes on and talks, in the same video, he talks about the Palestinians. Now, later, when, as you and I know, Ron Paul is theoretically for the truth. Mm-hmm. But uh, as Newt Gingrich said, the Palestinians are made-up people, and as mm-hmm. I, I very well agree. Mm-hmm. But then Ron Paul recently, um, after it was pointed out that Gingrich said that uh, they're invented, Ron Paul said, well, the Jews weren't... Israel wasn't invent, was invented, too, uh, about 75 years ago. No. Oh. Um, yeah. Okay, for me, that's enough. Bob can, Bob can pick up on a few more. Yeah, well, obviously, uh, if you read the Bible, Jay, uh, we know that Israel existed. King David was yes. not the king of Czechoslovakia. Right, right. And no, so what Ron Paul said was just historically so inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it may be that, you know... He needs more people like Rob Muchnick advising him on, on issues like this. Not so that he should get involved in Israel. We don't want him to be involved in Israel, but just so yeah. he'll have, have the knowledge that is right. required. I mean, look, right. not everybody is strong on every aspect. The other thing that he said, he wrote a great article, <clears throat> and I was so upset because I thought the article was so fabulous, and he ruined it with one sentence. He talked about, it was, it was called The 20 Traits of a Neocon. And 19 of the traits were fabulous. I mean, he was right on the money. Mm-hmm. And then the, the one trait that he is totally inaccurate on is he said they always support Israel. Now, 
they don't support Israel. Mm -hmm. They support the insider establishment Mm -hmm. of Israel, Mm -hmm. just like the neocons don't support America. Mm -hmm. They support the insider establishment of America. I I understand that very well, Um, and I think that what the two of you have done is helped to educate me, and hopefully a lot of my listeners, and perhaps uh, we can get this message passed along uh, to Ron Paul and uh, and some of the people. I do have some contacts there. We'll see what we can do. I want to also, though, move on a little bit. We, uh, my engineer is telling me we only have uh, another few minutes. I'm, I'm telling him I need it. Um, so uh, I, I, I've got to touch on, on Israeli politics then just briefly. Uh, the the gentleman that's running uh, that you are supporting the name is uh, Faglin. His first name is Moshe Faglin. Moshe Faglin. Okay, so uh, on most issues, uh, I guess uh, domestic I mean, issues of sound money, he would be in agreement with Ron Paul. Uh, yes. On issues of sovereignty, agreement with Ron Paul. Yes. Uh, at least as we think, Ron Paul believes in sovereignty. Right. What are the chances of uh, of him prevailing against uh, Mr. Netanyahu? As it as it turns out, the election ended 30 minutes ago. Oh. And uh, we will have results anywhere from from 5 to 6 p.m. tonight. Oh, I see. Um, okay. It, it, it's going to be it's going to be very difficult uh, for us to win an election mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. this time. The last election. We got uh, Moshe won twenty four percent. This time we'll, we'll probably get some somewhere between twenty five and thirty five percent. And it's a pro- it's a process because just like I see these Ron Paul Revolution T shirts and, and yes. hats. Now voting for voting for Ron Paul is a revolution because he wants sound money and he wants he wants to go by the Constitution. Right. These it- things are. It's not left or right. It's completely different. Exactly. In Israel, the revolution is us. We are the revolution because mm-hmm. we're not left or right. We're Jewish as opposed to Israeli. Right. And until people are ready for the revolution, um, it's, it's too hard to win. Everybody, everyone says, "Oh, we agree with everything you say." I've yeah. spoken with. I've spoken with significant donors of, of Benjamin Netanyahu. Mm-hmm. Um, and after speaking with them for 10 minutes, yeah, we support everything you say, but it's not practical. It's not practical. Yeah. And, I, and I say, look, guys, when has being practical ever helped the Jewish people throughout our history? Being right. practical gets us dead. Right. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, uh, freedom, truth doesn't come without a cost in many uh, cases, and in most cases probably... Uh, even in littler cases, and we know that, of course, the revolution that was fought against the British in 1776, there were men that risked their lives, and uh, and, it, and it's not popular now. What you two are doing uh, is speaking out against the mainstream, talking about, because you believe it's true, and I believe that you're on to something here very definitely. I'm, I'm thankful to both of you. We are out of time, unfortunately. I did have a bunch more questions to ask, but I think the both of you have done a really good job in helping me understand better about uh, the political issues inside of Israel and why uh, Israel may be indeed better off if the United States stopped its foreign aid. And you uh, understand and because you're a truth seeker. That's why you understand. Well, we try to, uh, Roberts, both of you on this show, that's what we try to do. Uh, and it isn't comfortable all the time 
stating things that you know are are, are not fashionable. But uh, but again, the truth ultimately wins out, I believe, and sometimes it's a long time coming. But uh, I think it's an educational process, as you were saying, uh, Robert Munchnick. It's very much like the Ron Paul uh, crusade, which is really an educational crusade. I think both of you have done a great job of educating me and our listeners. Thank you very much. Folks, uh, that's all Thank the time you. we have for this segment. We're going to be right back, though, uh, with a spokesman from Prophecy Platinum, uh, and Chen Lin will be with me as well. Really a very interesting company, I think, with, with great uh, multi, well, let's say world-class potential uh, up in the Yukon. So don't go away. We're going to be right back with Prophecy Platinum. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at w www.rypatchgold.com Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. listening to turning hard times into good times with your host jay taylor if you have a question or comment about today's show jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790 that's 1-866-472-5790 you can also send an email to questions for taylor at gmail.com 
That's questions, the number four, Taylor, at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Yep. Oh, welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Gregory Hall. Uh, he is a co-founder of Prophecy Platinum uh, and um, has a, a rich background in the mining industry. Uh, Prophecy Platinum is a sponsor of the show. It is also a recommendation of my newsletter, and it is a stock that, uh, that myself and my wife own as well. There are approximately 52 million shares outstanding. If I if I don't have that right, Gregory, you'll correct me. Uh, trades uh, in Toronto under the symbol NKL, and the last I looked, the stock was trading at about three dollars and fifteen cents. And if my shares outstanding number is correct, then that gives it a market cap of around 164 million. Welcome, Gregory. Thank you very much, Jay. Good to have you with us, and I might remind our listeners that Chen Lin, um, the author of What is Chen Buying, What is Chen Selling, is also here. Chen is also a follower of Prophecy Platinum. Um, well, a glance at your chart shows that your stock price really exploded um, last year from around $0.60 cents or so in the summer to it almost got very near $6 at one point by uh, the end of the summer. Um, it's currently selling, as I just mentioned, around 350 or so. What can you uh, tell us about the history of Prophecy Platinum, and, and why has the stock been so volatile? Sure. Thank you, uh, Jay. And, uh, yeah, just to correct, it, it is uh, just over 55 million shares now. Okay. 55 million? That's yeah. close. Okay. And, um, yeah, the uh, Prophecy Platinum was spun off from Prophecy uh, Coal, uh, the uh, founding company in June of last year, and as you mentioned, uh, had an explosive uh, action throughout the summer, really July and August, uh, sometimes trading uh, four or five million shares a day. Uh, the, the reason was that uh, in mid-July, we announced a new resource summary for the uh, Wellgreen project, which is our flagship project in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that uh, announcement was really headlined with uh, 12 million ounces of platinum, palladium, uh, and uh, gold, as well as uh, 2.4 billion pounds of nickel and uh, 2.2 billion pounds of copper. Wow! In, a, in an open pit uh, scenario. Whoa! That is really, really uh, rich. What sort of at, at current prices? I don't know if you'd have this number available or not, but could you give us some sense of what? that might be worth in a, in a per ton basis on a, a range of in the ground values per ton well um, you're you're looking at uh, grades uh, up, upwards of uh, one and a half to over two uh, grams per ton of uh, pgms and gold that's uh, the platinum group elements and, mm-hmm. and gold mm-hmm. um, over uh, uh, 0.6 uh, to 0.7% nickel and uh, and about the same uh, about 0.69% copper boy uh so uh, as you know Jay those are those are extremely high grades uh, for an open pit mine anywhere in fact uh they are in fact some of the highest grades uh for any uh, sort of a uh pit open pit scenario in North America yeah it is truly outstanding and uh, those kind of numbers are, are really are, are really quite uh, quite fabulous. What what about uh, exploration potential? Is this thing likely to get bigger, or 
And will you tr- be trying to make it bigger, or is this big enough already that you can start to do some uh, economic studies on it? Well, we've actually announced that um, at the end of February, um, in, in, a, in a month from now, we'll be announcing our uh, preliminary economicus. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're, we're actually moving towards uh, eventually a pre-feasibility study on the project uh, on the current uh, tonnage, which is uh, we announced 289 million tons mm-hmm. of, uh, uh, of inferred resource and, and 14.3 million tons of indicator resource. Hmm. Uh, within that, so we we do have a very large resource. In fact, if you take the cutoff down to uh, what the, the industry commonly uses as a, a 0.2 nickel equivalent cutoff, mm-hmm. you're, you're at about uh, 500. I'm sorry, uh, you're at about 500 million tons. Wow, which is, uh, as you know, extremely large. But the uh, there will be exploration about 20% of our 20,000 meter drill program to uh, to get underway actually in about a week, um, we'll be drilling from underground initially and then from surface. Um, so it's, it's a very large uh, drill program this year. 20% of that will be dedicated towards exploration. And um, there, is, uh, there is ample indication, uh, a long strike, uh, and, and, and a depth that uh, the deposit is wide open in three directions. Uh, and uh, there's certainly uh, lots of potential there for potentially a doubling of the resource. Hmm. All right, so so we'll have some sense of the economics of this as as early as next month and the end of end of next month, I guess. Yeah, uh, and then feasibility study, which will be a more detailed study towards uh, towards economics, towards putting it into production one day. I would imagine, though, this is a very very large project. It's going to require. Uh, I mean, this is the kind of project that would probably go to a major company. Is that what you're looking to do? Is to build this up and and have a major take it over? Well, uh, that that's certainly a possibility. If if a major approached uh, with uh, with an offer, uh, we would certainly uh, have to take that to our shareholders. But uh, we, we have a a group here within Prophecy that uh, we have one mine in production now, and uh, and we certainly are capable of taking Wellgreen into production. Certainly the uh, the uh, jurisdiction, the area that we're in, in southwest Yukon is is very friendly to mining, and uh, there are uh, several mines uh, in in production in the Yukon, and uh, it's, a, it's an historic mining district. Chen, did you have a question? Oh, uh, is it, when are you going to publish the, the pre-feasibility? study, uh, the pre-economic assessment, I believe. Uh, yeah, preliminary economic assessment, that'll be uh, published in one month. Uh, we're targeting the end of February. Um, okay, so have you any sense, I mean, maybe it's, it's too early to ask this question, but what sort of CapEx might might uh, give us a range, if you could, of what sort of CapEx might be required here? Because it's, it's bound to be large, given the size of this project. Well, certainly. I mean, it all depends, of course, Jay, on how you model the uh, throughput uh, through the mill. But uh, we're uh, we're looking at, uh, and we've uh, disclosed this before. We're looking at around a thirty thousand ton per day uh, throughput through the mill. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, so, if you work from that and looking at uh, various uh, other infrastructure requirements, um, you, you certainly are looking at a, a very large project. Uh, certainly. In the uh, probably in the uh, seven eight hundred million uh, dollar range, uh, but uh, certainly this is not uh, a mega project in the sense that uh, 
the casino, for example, just to the north of us, uh, Western Copper, that's, I, I believe, going to be uh, over twice the size mm-hmm. of, uh, of, our, of our project. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are much, and of course, if you look down in, in uh, Nevada and places like that, you have um, uh, projects that are uh, operating now there, uh, open pits at uh, many, many times the size of Wellgreen. Yeah, what um, uh, and and the environment there for uh, permitting and all is pretty favorable, I believe, in the Yukon. No, yeah, it's it's very similar to uh, Alaska, where the natives have treaties, mm-hmm. and uh, you can mining companies can uh, more easily work in a business uh, sense with the native uh, groups. Mm-hmm. We have a very small band, uh, less than two hundred people. Uh, the Kluwani band uh, is the affected band in our area. And a very business-friendly group, uh, highly educated and very pro-business. As as you know, Jay, the Wellgreen project was previously in production. HUD Bay had this in production in the 70s as a high-grade underground mine. We've just looked at it as a high-grade open pit mine. Mm -hmm. So we're really just re-permitting an existing mine, putting it back into production. The natives are are, uh, looking for these jobs. These jobs pay $90,000, $100,000 a year. Mm, very good. That brings a lot of wealth into uh, into a, a pretty depressed area of of the world. Do you uh, do you need going to need to raise any money? Uh, how much money do you have in the till now, and how far will that take you? Well, we're we're fully financed uh, for the for the current time. We did raise ten million dollars at uh, two dollars and seventy cents without warrants um, in a private placement in November mm-hmm. uh, about uh, three months ago. Mm-hmm. So you're okay for the next year or so. Well, we're okay uh, until uh, I would say summer. Mm-hmm. We uh, we do intend to um, raise uh, some capital. Uh, we, we have a uh, we have a twenty thousand meter drill program. Uh, we start drilling uh, next week from underground, and then with four drills from surface. So uh, we do have um, intention to to raise capital. We have had um, quite a few offers of financing. We've just chosen, since we don't need capital at the moment, uh, we don't wish to dilute our shares. Uh, we do believe that with the uh, PEA coming out in a month, our stock will move back up into that range that you mentioned this summer. Mm-hmm. It was in the five or six range, mm-hmm. and uh, we'd be much more interested in raising capital at that uh, at that level. Yeah, it makes, uh, makes a lot of sense. We have about one minute left. I uh, would like to ask you about Prophecy Coal. Prophecy Coal, which uh, your company, um, that is Prophecy Platinum, was spun out from, Prophecy Coal, though, still owns a big chunk of shares. How much of those 55 million shares does Prophecy Coal own? Yes, uh, Prophecy Coal owns 22.5 million shares of Prophecy Platinum, which is uh, just over 40% of Prophecy Platinum, and it's, so it's, it's the controlling shareholder. The and other in major terms- shareholder would be uh, the... Uh, uh, Sprott Asset Management with 14% of Prophecy Platinum. I see. And so in terms of that, re- those remaining 60%, uh, those owned, uh, some of those owned by management? Yes. Uh, management has uh, just under 10%, mm-hmm. so uh, quite a significant holding. That's always important to know. We like to see management's uh, interest aligned with shareholders, that's for sure. Well, this is a really, really interesting story, no doubt about it. I was up there with my partner and friend Chen Lin, and Chen is going to be with me on the other side of the break. That's all the time we have for now. I want to thank you very much for being with us and, and sharing this story with our listeners. Look forward to having you back, you or John or someone from the company again sometime in the not-too-distant future. Thank you very much for all of that. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Chen Lin to wrap up today's program. 
Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. American Bonanza Gold's Copperstone Project, located in Arizona, is on track for a fourth quarter 2011 mine and startup process with the goal of achieving full production by the end of the year 2011. American Bonanza is fully funded and permitted with no debit or hedge. The company has a clear strategy to create a highly profitable, mid-tier gold-producing company beginning in fourth quarter 2011. Join the current gold bull market. Be a part of a new gold producer in 2011. American Bonanza Gold Corp. Visit the website at American bonanza.com for more exciting information don't miss this great opportunity American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States, and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world. A National Instrument 43101 report of 13.8 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred. Go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com. Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at W www.rypatchgold.com Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. We only have about three minutes or so left to go, so we're going to jump right to Chen Lin. Chen, you had some uh, some breaking news from Majescore. Tell our listeners about that. Okay, yeah, they, they just published uh, today have a, another result, a uh, very long interception, over 200 meter, up 0.6% copper, plus some gold and silver. Hmm. So, you know, this historically has been, you know, go, they have copper, and then we saw they have uh, other area, they have gold, so uh, it's a copper and gold rich area. And also it's on top of the mountain, so the uh, it's uh, basically almost no strip ratio, it just uh, cut it down, and then, you know, it's a pretty high grade, and then from the it also it's from the surface. Yeah, and this is in Haiti, uh, I think, uh, very close to where Newmont is uh, is involved down there, along with uh, um, another company, um, Eurasia. Eurasia, so, exactly. Um, I, actually, I went there for visit. Actually, Newmont invited 
the, the other company in the Majesco to their office to discuss their drilling program. So I think they, they must have a lot of interest, mutual yeah, Majes- interest. Majesco trades on the Toronto Exchange under the symbol MJX, and it's a, where is it trading these days, Chen? About twenty-four cents Canadian. Twenty-four so cents. Yes, yeah, this this year. So had, yeah. they have a, quite a few fantastic results, but haven't moved yet. Yeah, it's, it hasn't moved the stock, but you know, eventually, if there's value there, it will. Another favorite of yours that uh, got hit pretty hard today is Marked Resources. Talk to us about that. Right. They have a very good trading result from recent well, but also said, okay, that recently they had some pipeline interruptions. That's kind of, you know, we know, uh, you know, there were some protests early uh, this year in, in, in Nigeria because of their fuel subsidy. Uh, but what they decided is it seems like a temporary uh, issue. Okay. So they have a, they couldn't have enough uh, storage for, for the oil. So, uh, so they were off like 30% in the past month, past two months. But, you know, looking forward, if they can resolve this, they'll be pumping a lot of oil. Yeah. But the company also have dividend news, potential dividend news, and potential the testing results. And the other day, we were building a pipeline news with Shell. All these are coming. Has management actually talked about dividends yet, Chen? I think they mentioned in the presentation in the, for, for institution investors. Okay, so in the conference in the conference as well, conference as well. In the conference call, so they have gone public with their intentions of issuing a dividend, and you know this is what's what's Mart selling at today? It came back a lot. What's it came it back at? down about nineteen percent or something. It's down to eighty-seven cents. So. Eighty-seven cents. Yeah, it still went up a lot. Consider how much it went up. It was forty cents, fifty cents when we were talking about like uh, just a month or two ago. Went all the way to a dollar ten. Now it come came down. Mm-hmm. Well, you still like it a lot, I guess, right? As much as ever. Yeah, because it's a really a technical selling. When you break the trend line, all these uh, you know trend traders are selling. So today, I just just let them sell because the news is not that bad. Right. Well, thanks, Chen. Uh, we are out of time, unfortunately. That's uh, all the time we've got. We've got to have you back next week for a little more time. Um, I, I just want to thank, uh, in closing, I want to thank uh, my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, Justin Jackman, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And I want to just remind you that coming up next week, we're going to have two economists, you know, on the one hand and then on the other hand, Dr. Schilling, a very well-known, very high-profile Dr. Gary Schilling will be with us. He's on the deflation side. And on the inflation side, the hyperinflationist John Williams, economist, both of those gentlemen will be appearing separately next week to provide their, uh, their views on, their differing views on the economy. So we hope you'll be back. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.